Hey everybody, my name is Justin Murphy and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co, that's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now, on to the show. All right, everybody. I am here with Max Nussenbaum, who is a writer and a previous startup founder, and he was recently drafted by the On Deck program to build their Writers Fellowship. So we're going to unpack what is the On Deck program, what is the Writers Fellowship, and all of that. But first of all, I just want to say to Max, uh, thank you for joining me, Max. Of course, I'm happy to be here. It's going to be fun. How are you doing today? Oh, it's just another beautiful pandemic day in 2020. I was uh, I was recently introduced to the term 2020 good, which is I'm doing good, parentheses, given the current state of the world. And I'd say that's about where I'm at. Yeah, 2020 is so insane. Everything feels so <laughs> everything feels so insane right now. And in an interesting way, I think On Deck is a very interesting startup because they're trying to intervene in in some of the craziness, specifically around academia. At least that's how I interpret On Deck. I interpret On Deck as a startup that is essentially trying to replace the university. Even though I don't think On Deck would say that explicitly, that's how I interpret the the larger long term mission. They describe it as. Uh, seeking to build a modern educational institution. So if you would, if you don't mind, why don't we just start by, can you explain to me and my audience just how you see the essential wager of OnDeck and what OnDeck is trying to do? Yeah, yeah. So I'll start really quickly with kind of the history of OnDeck and then that'll get us to today and, and the bet because I think it's the the wager has evolved over time. And I think that's something with a lot of startups is they don't start with necessarily the, their big uh, mission in mind. So they mm-hmm. start with a little nibble of an idea and then the bigger possibilities become apparent over time. So On Deck grew out of a dinner series that Eric uh, Tornberg, the founder of On Deck, was having before it was a company just for fun. Basically, he was getting together people, mostly startup founders or early employees who were ready for the next phase in their career, the next step. That's where the term On Deck comes from. And the thesis there was that like now there's been this sort of whole explosion of incubators, startup accelerators, uh, organizations that help people starting very early stage companies. But what do you do if you're one step before that, right? You're uh, someone who's been relatively accomplished in the startup world, you want to start a company, start your next company, you are, you want to explore what comes next for you. And you want to do it in a way that's if you join a startup accelerator, you have to have a company, they take equity in it, even if your company is just an idea, you're committing to that path. Whereas uh, on deck was designed to be something more exploratory. So we had these dinners, it was just these free dinners he was organizing, they ended up spouting up all over the country was hugely popular. And they realized, hey, there's like actually a company here. And so that led to version one of on deck, which was basically a uh, dinner and event series and community for startup founders who are ready for what's next. Ran a couple cohorts in uh, San Francisco and in one in New York, which I actually participated in, where they'd basically bring people who are looking for what's next together, build a, a real community so they could meet each other as potential co-founders, early employees, learn from each other, bring in interesting speakers, VCs, startup people, and then do that in sort of cohorts of, of eight weeks. And that was pretty successful, started to get pretty popular. Some on-deck founders, uh, a lot of people met co-founders through the program, raised some money, ended up really kicking into gear uh, a little before COVID hit. Right around that time, on-deck made the transition into uh, a sort of remote-first virtual community, basically under the thesis that uh, even before COVID, the era where 
you had to move to one specific place uh, to start a company or to achieve success in any field really was ending. And then uh, on top of that, just talent is globally distributed and trying to do these programs, even if they opened them up in five other cities, we're, we're never going to be able to get the full range or, or breadth of talent that they could find. And so the founder program has been, been pretty successful. And we're now in our sixth cohort of it. And a part of the idea of On Deck from the beginning has always been that we're about you know helping people who are going to build the future and promoting entrepreneurship in a really broad uh, definition of that, right? Not just the sort of narrowly backed like Silicon Valley VC-backed startup that you often hear about. Even the Founder Fellowship, I think, already works that way from a really interesting just business model standpoint, which is that unlike an accelerator or an incubator, it's not an equity deal. You're not giving up equity in your company. You literally just pay to do that. And I think the advantage of that, one, is there's a there's much more of a clear alignment. Our users literally are our customers. They're paying us to do this program. And so it better be good. But also it gives people a lot more freedom and flexibility in business models. They're not locked into a venture back model. People have done on deck and bootstrapped a lot or even explored the, the nonprofit space. But we quickly realized that there were so many other sort of uh, types of uh, people, types of entrepreneurial types or builders that a program like this could exist to help. So launched the Angel Fellowship, basically, which was teaching you how to be an angel investor if you just want to get started with that uh, a couple of months ago. And then I joined also a couple of months ago to launch uh, our Writer Fellowship, which is basically for uh, anyone who's writing publicly and independently for for the web. I think independent writers are essentially a form of micro entrepreneur, right? If you want to start a, a newsletter, an email newsletter, there's so much you have to learn how to do that goes into that other than just being good at writing. But if you think about, if you go Google how to find users, how to get users for your SaaS product, you'll find tons of resources. And if you were going to look up how to get uh, readers for your email newsletter, there's really just a comparative dearth of information. And a lot of what you would find is like, assuming your email newsletter is the first part of a sales funnel from a company and it's going to tell you how to do SEO keyword research, which is nothing against that. I've used techniques like that for my startup. But if you're an independent writer who wants to speak right from the heart about something you're interested in, that's not really the right approach for, for you at all. And so you know, high level right now, OnDeck sees itself, as you said, as building a modern educational institution. I would say right now, we don't really necessarily see ourselves as directly competing with universities, I think it's a very different type of quote unquote education that people come to on deck for. Next year, we're going to launch, we've already announced a podcaster fellowship. We've got a number of other fellowships in the pipeline. And I think on deck five years from now, we have more different types of fellowships than there would be majors at, at a university. I think the thing that's really interesting about what we're doing though, and that personally is a big part of what gets me really excited and, and why I'd say we're very different from, if you think about like traditional uh, online learning or ed tech start, startups is that the number one thing we build with our programs, it's not really education, although that's a big part of what we do. It's actually community. And so I would say on deck, we're really the the first or, or the, the only really that I'm aware of uh, quote unquote online education startup that's focused a lot more on replicating the community element of learning or of a university experience than just like the course element. And I think that from an from both a value and an emotional standpoint, that's actually one of the most valuable things about any type of group of people who are learning together. That's interesting, what you say about community. Now, do you think, actually, I have a bunch of interesting substantive questions for you, but I think uh, for my audience who might not be familiar with you, do you want to tell us just a little bit about your background? I know you founded startups and you also wrote a book about startups. So maybe just give us a little bit of a backstory on your own relationship to founding and writing and how you've seen those two intertwine together yourself. Yeah, totally. So I would actually, I'd say there's sort of three components of my past that have all come together to make this uh, kind of a dream job for me right now. And those are my interest in writing startups and community building as well. 
I was one of those uh, kids who was writing, you know, short stories when I was two, always grew up thinking I wanted to be a writer. I was pretty deep into it in college, majored in creative writing, wrote uh, a full-length original musical with a friend who wrote the music that, that we put on in school, had some early work like creative fiction published right after I graduated, and but pretty quickly realized that although I love the act of writing, that it wasn't something I wanted to do full-time in my career because I just, I cared too much about really collaborating with other people and working with others to build something in a way that isn't really compatible with the type of writing I like to do. I think there's certainly a lot of collaborative element if you were going to work as a, there's it as a, in a TV writer's room or something like that, but that was never the type of writing that, that appealed to me. I ended up making a really unexpected left-hand turn into startups when I joined uh, a program called Venture for America, uh, fresh out of college. Uh, Venture for America is now pretty well known because it was founded by Andrew Yang, future UBI activist and niche, niche presidential candidate. But at the time, it was this sort of little rinky-dink nonprofit had just started. And basically, VFA sends people, recent college grads, to work at startups in quote-unquote emerging cities around America, which is basically mm -hmm. like crappy places that people don't usually want to move. Uh, I moved to Detroit, uh, having only ever been there for eight hours, ended up falling totally in love with the city. Bought an abandoned mansion there with some friends, rehabbed it nights and weekends, teaching ourselves on YouTube. And that led to starting this tech startup called Castle, which was uh, basically trying to make a better property management experience for uh, owners, tenants, contractors using technology. Castle had some early success. We, we started as like nobodies in Detroit. I started the company, I was 24. We were nobodies that we would get an introduction to an investor and the investor would turn down the intro, like not take the call, then decide not to invest, <laughs> like literally pass on the intro and ended up having some early success in Detroit, got some good growth there, later did Y Combinator in the beginning of 2016, did really well there, were hot shit for a minute, raised a big seed round from a lot of big name VCs, felt really good about ourselves and then had a long, slow decline and epic collapse. Um, Wait, and what what was that business? Yeah, so we were basically uh, re managing rental properties uh, for landlords using technology to make a better experience. So single family homes focused on, on the Midwest. Um, it's funny okay. because even though Castle totally failed, one thing we really did get right was that we were like the first uh, full stack property management startup, i.e. a property management technology company that actually literally does the property management, isn't just making software. And that's a mm -hmm. fairly popular category right now. Uh, so I'm still proud that we pioneered it, even though I have my doubts about whether it's going to end up being a viable category at all. Interesting. Um, I want to briefly yeah. pause and return to the mansion that you bought. Tell us more about that. Listeners to my podcast know I'm super interested in this kind of stuff. I lived in a massive kind of crazy warehouse experiment when I was in grad school. And yeah, and, I, and to this day, I'm still writing and talking a bit about possibly really attractive opportunities for significant lifestyle redesign, given the new prominence of remote work and all of that. So give us the rundown on the mansion. How much did it cost? How long did it take for you to build it up? And what ultimately came of it? Or what did you learn from that? Yeah. So I think one of my absolute favorite things about living in Detroit was that there was just this incredible DIY community spirit. I think a, a lot of it you saw emerge because just government sources, government uh, institutions or official organizations were, there were just so few of that in Detroit as compared to a lot of other cities. When I moved there, I think two thirds of the streetlights in Detroit were out. This was 2012, right? It's an idea. And one of our neighbors built his own streetlight that he wired to an outlet in his house so that we could have light on the block. And there were just that kind of spirit was everywhere. And uh, there were a lot of people like doing a lot of really great, crazy projects. It was the kind of place where we moved there. We were 23 year olds when we decided to, to buy this mansion at a tax auction. And we asked a bunch of other you know, people we knew, some of whom had fixed up houses themselves. Hey, is it crazy for 23-year-olds who don't know anything about construction to 
buy a, a mansion that's a total teardown and try to fix it up themselves. And it, that is crazy, just to be clear. Like, I think in objective <laughs> reality, uh, and every single person we talked to was like, nah, do it. Go ahead. It's just like that kind of place. So we purchased, it was this uh, mansion that had been abandoned for at least five years. We're not totally sure how long. It was a total wreck. It was a seven-bedroom, 3,500-square-foot mansion in what in 1920 was the richest neighborhood in America, purchased at tax auction for just over $8,000 that we raised from uh, Kickstarter. Or it wasn't actually Kickstarter. We used some other platform, some kind of crowdfunding. Um, Wait, $8,000 total? Yes. Now, that's very misleading because we ultimately put over $200,000 into actually fixing up the house. We actually basically, we formed an LLC found an outside investor. It, it was essentially a very micro scale real estate development project um, because obviously we did not have anywhere close to 200 grand ourselves. So the $8,000 figure is misleading, but yeah, eight grand and, and the house was ours. Uh, and it was like, literally we did, it needed new roof, new plumbing, new electrical, new wiring, new everything. And basically what we Wait, did and, is and, we- And say more about how you raised the money. Yeah, basically the honest answer is we got really lucky, but basically we- it's funny, we, in retrospect, it, it could have really gone either way, right? Like we, we raised the $8,000 to buy the house in a crowdfunding campaign where we got a lot of people we knew to chip in 50, 100 bucks. There was some promotion from Venture for America. We put in some of our own money as well. I, had, uh, I was on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire when I was 19 and won nowhere close to a million dollars or even <laughs> $200,000, but a, a nice little chunk of change for when I, when I was a teenager. Um, and so we scraped enough money together to buy this house. And then we just were coping and crossing our fingers that we'd be able to put more money together. We borrowed at pretty high interest from some other people we knew, low amounts, and then basically ended up at a year in, we were putting together the financing, we'd get a little bit and we'd do a little bit of work, we'd get more, we'd do more, ended up basically through total luck and privilege. One of the guys I own the house with used to work for Quicken Loans which is like uh, the biggest employer in Detroit. Dan Gilbert, who owns the Cavs, owns it. And he got connected to a really rich woman who works at Quicken Loans, who basically just like decided to do him a favor and invest the money in this house. It's funny because it ended up that this is going to have been a, a really profitable investment for her. But I think at the time she was just like, yeah, I'm so rich that I, she put in a hundred grand and she's so wealthy that she basically the equity deal chooses it. Uh, she both gets a, a big chunk of the proceeds if and when we sell the house and she gets distributions from the rental income every year. She actually has never taken her annual distributions because they're only a couple thousand dollars and she would just rather not have to deal with filling out the tax form that you have to do if you have <laughs> income from real estate. It's like not worth five grand for her to fill out that form. So she just never takes okay, those so distributions. Wait. I have a question. So what was the business model though? Was it just a basic real estate play? Like we're going to fix this up, then it's going to be worth more? Yes, it was literally a basic real estate play. It was we're going to rehab this house. We're going to there's going to we're going to rent it out to other young people as a co-living co-working space and there's going to be rental income and then eventually we're going to sell it and it's going to be worth a lot more. And it was a bet on Detroit, right? I think we believed and it has definitely turned out to be true that Detroit was in a pretty bad spot. We thought it was going to do better. It definitely we really were confident it wasn't going to do any worse. I guess there's always a deeper bottom. But, and I think that really turned out to be true. I still, we still own the house. I still have a lot of ties into to Detroit. I go back there often and uh, the city, obviously it's, has still has a lot of problems, but 
it's nothing like it was in, in, in 2012. Okay. So you all build it up and did that go well? Did you successfully <coughs> bring it up to bring it up to a, a nice respectable living condition or how did it? Play yeah, out? it did. I mean, there's no better way to motivate yourselves to make a house really nice to live in than moving in when it's still a complete shithole with no electricity or running water, because you are very motivated to make it livable as soon as possible when you have to live there, even if it's not livable. And yeah, basically, we obviously hired contractors for stuff like the roof or the electrical or plumbing that we weren't going to be able to do ourselves. For a lot of the intermediate stuff, we took this approach of, for example, something like tile. We hired a contractor, but then instead of having him hire subcontractors, we were the labor and he like taught us how to do it. And then for a lot of stuff like refinishing the floors or the, or the drywall or whatever, we either taught ourselves from YouTube or we, you know, had tons of neighbors and other people we knew in this really great like DIY rehabber community who would, we went over to someone's house, our neighbor's house and helped them build his deck. And then he came over and, you know, taught us how to refinish floors. So it definitely, right. it's funny if you walk through the house, you can tell like which rooms we did first because you can clearly see us getting better in the quality of the work. It's, <laughs> it, there are many aspects of it that look like, Four twenty-four year olds who didn't know what they were doing fixed it up. But this was this is this house was built in I think nineteen nineteen. This incredibly beautiful house originally. The original hardwood floors, molding, the quality, the bones of these homes are just so strong that you have a lot of leeway, even as a relatively inexperienced person fixing it up, and it's still going to look like pretty fucking awesome when when you're. And done. so, how long did it take you to get it up to? par and then what happened like how long did you live in it together how long was it until you all went separate ways and why did you go separate ways and how did that play out yeah so we it's funny when people ask that question because people would say like how long did it take you to finish the house and I'm like it's still not really done you know i mean the house is never <laughs> yeah. done there's more what, is, what is it currently appraised at <laughs> we haven't gotten it appraised because a we haven't been trying to sell right away but also for complicated reasons that I'm happy to do a big tangent on. Appraisals in Detroit are super weird because there aren't, there's just like very few good comps. Um, so what's your guess it's, or it's, what would Zillow predict? I would guess it's probably worth four hundred dollars to $450,000, which is would be about double what we spent and put into it if you yeah. value our labor at zero. The joke of this <laughs> is that when we sell the house, which we'll probably do in the not too distant future, we'll each get what'll feel like a nice chunk of change. But yeah. it's going to be less than minimum wage for the labor we did over two years. And so we always are, joke, it's funny because people are always like, oh, wow, you own a house in Detroit. I'm like, I own 12.5% of an LLC that owns a house in Detroit. <laughs> oh, you, you only own 12% of it? I thought it was only well, four people. Oh, yeah. Four and then people the investors. plus the equity investor. So she has 50 right. and then the four of us split the other 50. But the truth uh, is, I would have done it. I would have done this for free. Like just the experience of... Fixing up the house was super fun. Getting to live there was amazing. It would have been totally worth it, even if we never made any profits from it. Yeah. So that was going to be one of my next questions is, do you look back on this as a kind of amazing, priceless experience that was awesome and you're so happy that you did it? Or do you look back on it as like, uh, uh, I was young and naive and it was interesting and clever, but yeah, I probably wasted a bit of my life on a low return, uh, weird experiment that didn't <laughs> really pan. Like you could yeah. plausibly see it in both of those two ways. So I'm just curious. Totally. Like, and I think it, it sounds it like could the, have really, the former. It could have really easily gone south. We were taking a big gamble, but no, 100% the former. In some ways, it was the most satisfying thing I've ever done. Uh, it, it We took a big gamble on something that a lot of people thought we would never be able to do successfully. It worked out. We taught ourselves a bunch of stuff. There's something really satisfying about working with your hands. Just the feeling of showering in this bathroom every day for years and being like, I laid the tile in the shower. It felt really good. And right. it really laid the groundwork for two of the people I bought the house with later ended up becoming co-founders of, of my startup. And I think it was, we had a, this really great advantage that we had, it was like our proto startup, right? Like we, 
we worked together on this thing. It wasn't really a company. Technically, it was an LLC, but it gave us a, a you know, really good experience working with together, working together. It made us battle tested. When we did our Y Combinator interview. They asked how we knew that because founder co-founder breakups are like the biggest cause of startup failure in the early stages. And they asked how we knew that we would stay together as a team. And we slid over like an eight by 10 photo of the like decrepit living space that we had been living in before <laughs> the house was fixed up. And we were like, if we can stay good friends and coworkers and collaborators after like living together in this room for six months, like we can definitely start a company together. Um, nice, nice. And, and it also was really one of the foundational experiences because we all live there. And then we had other, a bunch of different other friends move in and out. A couple companies got started out of the living space. It was another really foundational community building experience for me. So the first early example of those different threads being pulled together. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's fascinating. And how long was this experience all in? So we, let's see, there was maybe like six or seven months of prep work of planning, exploring different houses, doing raising the the, kick, the the Kickstarter money, then a year of working on the house before we were able to move in, just like doing demo and getting it wired for power and stuff. Then it was like another two years while we were living there to, and fixing it up. Maybe another six months or so where we lived there while it was mostly done. And then basically what happened is we, we all, we lived there together and operated our, our startup out of there until after about six months after we did YC, we ended up, the company had grown a good bit. We ended up opening a second office in Oakland, California. The founders, myself included, mostly then were based out of Oakland, but we main, we had a team in Detroit. We maintained a uh, room in the house. I spent about two years basically flying back and forth between Oakland and Detroit, half living there. And then we really didn't stop going back super regularly until the company failed, which was the beginning of 2018. And, and even then, we still own the house. There's still renters living in there right now. And, and we go back occasionally. So I guess it was five really core years between starting the project and still spending a, a good amount of time there slash half living there. And then I, I don't think it's even completely over yet. That is cool. I really like this. And people might be wondering like, oh, man, Justin, weren't you supposed to be talking about writing in the internet landscape and all that? <laughs> but I personally, in my kind of crazy like delusions of grandeur, I see these things as super interconnected because people who listen to my podcast and read my blog and stuff know that I'm very interested in how I think writing and intellectual production is going to merge with community building in a way that becomes increasingly fluid uh, online and offline. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And I would say really the the way that I think about the thread that's tied all the disparate things I've done together is storytelling. Obviously, literally when I was writing fiction, I was literally telling a story. But for this house, a big part of the way we got people to put money for a Kickstarter was telling the story of what we were going to do. We made these videos and we had this uh, newsletter where we would give people updates and creating this such that it felt like our whole community was invested in, in our success. I think that's a big part of what one, you do when starting a company is, is storytelling. And I think that when you're building a, a community, telling the creating sort of the myth of why that community is coming together, even if it's just for a, a two day party in the Airbnb or something, that's what makes those communities strong. Yeah. Do you think that this is neglected and un underexploited in Silicon Valley? Do you think that co-housing co or co-living possibilities are really being overlooked by people that are trying to jumpstart like serious creative projects, whether that be a company or a YouTube channel or whatever the project might be? My, I definitely have this hunch that there are super interesting and viable 
configurations that involve groups of people basically doing a combination of a real estate play, but also a content production play, also a kind of publicity stunt type of play, a kind of reality TV mo model layered on top yeah. of, individu of individual content creators doing their thing. And at the same time, the actual dynamics, the energy and the motivation of the people doing these different projects is enhanced and accelerated by the simple act of being together in a way that now is all of a sudden way more viable and imaginable because so many people are doing remote work. Do you want to speak to that a little bit more broadly saying like yeah. how, how you see that right now and in the near future? Because I think it actually does relate to the longer term uh, trajectory of programs such as OnDeck or such as IndieThinkers.org. Like I think this is where we're going. So it's not totally disconnected from, from the writing and the internet landscape question. Yeah, big picture, I think that's right. I think our years of the founders living together and having our office be our house, or it was funny because the space was set up mostly like an office. So people would say, oh, do you work from home? And I would say, no, I live in my office. Uh, we didn't even have a kitchen table or anything. I think that was really powerful. And I think people crave that community to, to some degree. I, I wouldn't say I think it's overlooked by Silicon Valley. I think it's it, there's a lot of people in Silicon Valley paying attention to this. And I think the downside is, and I say this with as a former and maybe current startup person myself, as someone who lived in Oakland, but still adjacent to Silicon Valley. But like the problem with all these Silicon Valley co-living experiments is like, who wants to co-live with the, the type of other people who would want to be like the early tenants in a Silicon Valley co-living startup, right? That's those people. I think some of them are great, but that's a very narrow niche of community. And I think a lot of these things just inherently work better if they're bottom up, right? Do you want to live in a awesome co-living environment that you and the people you live with created yourselves? Or do you want to live one that's like in one that's run by a startup with a dumb name and where the community involves like having an app? And I have friends who started right. co-living companies. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm for it. But, and I also think it's elements of, I don't know, one of my sort of like fantasies uh, that I probably will never actually do is, are you familiar with Oneida? I don't think so. So Oneida was a uh, it's somewhere between cult and intentional community in upstate New York, I think in the 1800s, that was uh, really forward thinking. They uh, were early feminists, they like practiced free love, but they also made silverware. That was how they like financially supported themselves. And the intentional community slash cult, I would say eventually became more of a cult. The founder, when he got older, started doing all the disgusting things that power-hungry cult founders typically do, and it fell apart. But the silverware brand still exists. It's now owned by some other company, but I actually still have Oneida Silverware. Anyway, <laughs> I think like the idea of, I don't even want to call it starting a company that's also a co-living scenario. It's more like starting an intentional community that's also working together on projects that enable you to be self that enable your community to be sustainable, I think is right. really awesome. I also see a thousand ways that could obviously go horribly wrong. And it's very incompatible with Silicon Valley scale culture. But uh, I'd love to see more types of experiments like that happening today. Interesting. Interesting. Now, what do you think is the key to building a successful cult? <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny because <laughs> that's... I. The, you know, people in Silicon Valley often say, oh, successful companies are a lot like cults. And I think that is, it is true, but I feel like it's one of those pieces of Silicon Valley rhetoric that like had some good stuff in it originally, but now has just been repeated to a point where it's lost all meaning. But yeah, I think people crave the meaning and community that they get from organizations. And there's a lot of aspects of cults that I think are really positive, right? A cult is basically like a awesome like community that's so it, cults are in some ways such awesome communities that they that people want to be a part of them even when all this horrible stuff is revealed and right. i think this is like a little bit weird to say but i think you could probably there, there's a lot of power in potentially removing some of those 
aspects and still taking the lessons you can about community building. It's funny because I'm watching The Vow right now. Are you familiar with this documentary? No. The Vow, it's about uh, Nexium, which is that sort of, that cult, that sort of like Hollywood cult that was where the founder was having women branded with his initials. Uh, it's really- Oh, wow. Is this, is this on Netflix? Or yeah, where is it's on, on HBO. Oh, okay, um, cool. It's, it's really gruesome and abusive stuff. But the thing that's fascinating about it is that Nexium, this organization- was like essentially a giant uh, self-improvement multi-level marketing scheme of the kind where there was some sketchy go- stuff going on, but no sketchier than any other multi-level marketing scheme. And then the very inner circle of it was this like evil, abusive sex cult. But like when this all came out, there were like 50,000 people who were members of this sort of bullshitty self-improvement organization, but who had no idea that any of this fucked up stuff was going on inside. Mm. And yeah, so I I guess it's, I, I wouldn't even say... I guess what I would say is that I think that people really want to be part of communities and shared mythologies. And I found that to be really powerful in not only just starting my, my own company, but like I've, I run this adult summer camp kind of thing that I feel like has learned a lot from that. Even at small scale, like I had, I, I went away a couple of weekends ago with a, a group of friends. We rented a, an Airbnb. Everyone got COVID tested and quarantined for a week before. Just want to put that out there in case I sound like I'm making a lot of bad decisions. And just a group of friends getting together, but me and my, my buddy who organized it, we gave the weekend a name and we had, we had like some, like we have a schedule and some rules, which I just think actually, I think people often look at cults and think, oh, the p- people who would join cults or communes are all these like crazy free thinking hippies who just don't want any rules or structure. But I think actually people crave a little bit of rules and structure. And I also think it's really helpful for social cohesion and for making people who are new to that community, whether it's a new member of a commune or just like someone coming to a weekend of friends who doesn't know everyone else as well, feel a lot more comfortable and included. Yeah, I basically agree with a lot of that. I've also talked about this a bit that I I tend to think that cults are the cult is pretty much like the long run equilibrium of successful, powerful community. But the problem is that it just has a lot of failure modes. There are many ways in which it commonly goes terribly wrong. And so it gets a bad rap. It's associated with its failure modes, crazy delusional beliefs and rampant, like weird sex abuse and like shootouts with law enforcement (laughs) and all these and and suicides and stuff like all these crazy uh, extreme failure modes. But those extreme failure modes are precisely a function of the incredibly intense, powerful bonding and community. And I think it's the reason why it's taboo to talk about cults or to be interested in in cults and to actually take them seriously as uh, from a social scientific perspective, to to actually use them as a way to unwind what are the ideal components of an actually successful, powerful community. The reason that's so taboo is because it's a dirty little secret. I think people who are actually good at building successful communities, people who are good at building successful startups and Often, they often know on a, on some level that they are trafficking an essentially cult-like phenomena, uh, but no one wants to talk about that. That can't be allowed to rise to the surface because they have such a cult. The cult has such like a bad PR problem. Yeah, but I, I, yeah, actually, Justin, I have a question for you on this that I'm curious for yeah. your take on. To what extent do you think when you look at these sort of cult leaders who ended up doing really horrible things, and I'm not talking about the Jim Joneses or people who have this truly delusional ideology, but more like your classic cult leader who is sexually abusing their followers or just having a hundred Rolls Royces or whatever. To mm-hmm. what extent do you think they started the organization or cult with the goal of becoming this sort of manipulative leader? Or to what extent do you think it's maybe that they actually started with pretty good intentions, but just like when you become this powerful figurehead at the center of this community, it ends up really corrupting you. I think it's, I think people would be surprised the degree to which it is 
genuinely good intentions. Yeah. yeah. I think for the most part, it is often people with genuinely visionary ideas that are impressively true and compellingly precise and resonant with people's actual thoughts and feelings. And it's often people who are gifted with charisma and a kind of natural social smoothness and attractiveness, often a physical attractiveness also. So it's often, I think, started typically, it is started by talented people with powerful traits who actually do have a unique vision for something really beautiful and good. And that is precisely why it gets so bad and crazy, because they are in touch with something real. And they're preaching a message that really touches people deep down in a way that mainstream social institutions are just really bad at even approximating. And yeah, you get someone who actually sees something unique about like how true community can be. You get some people who see some real honest truths about just how bad normal, you know, functioning mainstream institutions are. And they see so clearly in their soul, like what human beings could be if they simply avoided the bad things and did all the good things and everyone trusted each other and had faith in each other and pursued the radical good away from social constraints. That is a genuinely intoxicating and genuinely really existing kind of possibility. I think it's actually a genuinely existing attraction that is in theory attainable, but the problem is it's just so dangerous because if you can actually organize other people to have that kind of shared enthusiasm and that shared faith in each other that is willing to basically say all of the rest of society doesn't see this thing that we see, that's insanely powerful. And at the same time, because of that power, that's exactly what allows it to go off the rails in such like unpredictably chaotic and horrifying ways. And uh, I think people who have founded and, and, and scaled a successful startup with a happy, energized, enthusiastic company culture know damn well exactly what I'm talking about because all successful communities that involve a large number of people working together towards shared goals have to traffic in this. And that I think that's like the dirty little secret of cults and what they really represent in our society. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Do you think that they're sometimes evil people trying to manipulate and accrue power from the get-go? Yeah. I'm more, I, I go back and forth. I'm I think it's closer to what you're saying. I think certainly one thing you realize from watching, certainly from watching the Bow and any of these documentaries is that even these really, and I think, I'm not sure I really even believe in the concept of evil, but even these uh, cult leaders who are causing incredible harm, they clearly believe their own bullshit. Keith Rene, who's the, the founder of Nexium, this cult in the Bow, best case scenario, he's spending 20% of his time on like the fucked up sex stuff. And 80% of his time leading these like incredibly bullshit self-help seminars, like that ratio is not worth it to you unless you also believe in the self-help bullshit that you're spreading. Uh, I also think, I also think that it's not most people, no matter how powerful or influential they got in some kind of community would not be tempted to go down this dark path of forcing their followers to have sex with them and branding their initials into their bodies. So there's got to be something off from the beginning. Yeah, I do think it's probably cults select for leaders who have slightly psychopathic tendencies because you have to be slightly psychopathic to say something like all of conventional society fails to see this thing, but I see this thing and I'm going to lead you to this thing to to even have that kind of idea, which by the way, is essentially the structure of thought that any startup founder has. I was just about to say this same thing. I think that's true for startups as well. But to have that kind of conviction and to actually act on it, you have to have a touch of 
sociopathy or, or psychopathy, I think, because yeah, you're basically saying that, that the rest of the world is dumb and you're going to do something, even if they don't want you to do it, you don't care. So, so that takes a touch of psychopathy. And then I think that's a problem. So I think like the design problem here would be like, could you design social mechanisms that could elevate non-psychopathic people to be cult leaders like i think probably an interesting model would be like if you're a if you're a charismatic psychopath who wants to start a cult maybe like what you could try is find some non-psychopathic like very sweet person who you can get to be the leader and get maybe get like a few other people to be like objective third-party mediators to prevent you from brainwashing her or something like that if you could get I don't know why I said her. I guess I'm assuming it would be like a, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming it would be like a sweet uh, woman and, and women are more agreeable on average than men. So I guess that's why I'm imagining that. And so you could imagine like some kind of like unique community design kind of seed structure that could channel the energy and the power of the charismatic uh, visionary, but also keep it in check. Like basically you'd want like a system of checks and balances, but for a yeah. cult. <laughs> and that's one of the things I think is so great about having co-founders in the castle days. There was no matter what level of success we achieved, if we had become a multi-billion dollar company and I was like on the cover of Business Week and stuff, there's no level of success I could achieve that my co-founders wouldn't still think I'm like a fucking dumbass. But I think that's very grounding. <laughs> Right on. Okay, great. So let's move into talking a little bit more about the Writers Fellowship. So <laughs> almost deck. almost forgot that was what I came on here to talk about. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's good. It's good. We we keep we kept everyone super interested in uh, weird zany stuff, and we've kept them on the hook uh, to to hang out until we talk about the originally intended express purpose of this talk. It's, so it's the opposite on- of a cult starts with the normal stuff, and then you draw them in and eventually reveal the weird shit. We started with the weird shit, and now we're moving to the normal <laughs> stuff. Yeah, exactly. Nice. I like that. So. Uh, on deck is uh, a growing startup. They, I think they just raised 3 million, if I recall that correctly. And they are trying to scale this modern educational institution by taking on board a whole bunch of different fellowship uh, program leaders. And so just for people listening who maybe haven't really understood the basic idea, on deck is a series of fellowships. So they, as Max alluded to before, they have, they did a founder's fellowship, which was, I guess, the most natural starting point, given the background and the kind of sociological characteristics of the people involved. But now what they're trying to do is, is expand to different verticals. So they have a podcast fellowship, they have a writer's fellowship, and I'm pretty sure they have uh, plans for a whole bunch more. And to do that fast in this kind of move fast and break things spirit that Silicon Valley is known for, they're basically going around to people, Max, and asking for uh, them to build the program. And so you, Max, were enlisted to build this writer's fellowship. So break that down for us. But maybe you were given a lot of control over this. You had a lot of autonomy in building this, as early employees of startups often have. So tell us, like, what is your personal perspective on what is a writer's fellowship supposed to do? And how do you see it doing that? Yeah. So I think like the thesis behind the On Deck Writer Fellowship is that the least valuable thing we can probably do is actually help you with the quality of your writing. Now, that's not to say it's not a part of the program. We have writers workshops. There's a big level of community feedback. But when I think about what's involved in having a you know successful blog or newsletter or other form of independent writing, you're probably already a reasonably good writer if you if this is something you want to do. And frankly, It's not like you have to be an amazing writer on the sentence level to have a really interesting newsletter about a certain topic, right? You have to be an interesting thinker, have some relevant knowledge and a a good enough writer that you can clearly communicate your ideas. Mm -hmm. Not like the kind of writer who would, you know, be doing an MFA at Iowa or anything like that. 
And frankly, if you're not already a good writer, we probably, one, you won't get in because it's a competitive program, but also we probably can't help you that much in, in eight weeks. But that really the things, the things that people need help with are understanding how to do all the other stuff that's involved, finding your niche, figuring out what to write about, figuring out how to promote your newsletter, figuring out if revenue models, if you even should be trying to make money directly from your writing, or if you should be using it to uh, further your career or to build a community you can monetize in, in other ways. I think there's a whole, whole lot of options. Um, just like sticking to a regular cadence, finding a community of people who will inspire you. So much of quote unquote successful writing is just like getting up the, the ginning up the confidence to be like, yes, I should write and, and put my voice out into the world, which is something I still have trouble with, despite mm-hmm. being as someone listening to this podcast can probably tell not someone who is shy about sharing my opinions with the world. Um, so can I yeah. pause? Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious, you mentioned the initial part of the program is helping people sort themselves into different goals and, and trajectories. I'm curious, what kind of heuristics do you have for when you encounter a new person who is a writer or wants to be a writer? How do you think about sorting those people into different types of projects or goals? Yeah, I would say first off, just to think about On Deck in general, we describe our programs as like a buffet or a choose your own adventure, right? Like, we attract a very entrepreneurial set of people who do not want to be going through some course that's like the 10 steps to successful writing. We create a right. bunch of experiences and sessions and stuff that and people can pick and choose what they want. A lot of it is pretty self-directed. We're there if people have questions or, or want to learn, but it's not like we're like everyone goes through some funnel where we help them like figure out their goal. And I think really uh, what, what I think about is the First off, the vast majority of people, I think, should not be trying to directly make money from their writing. That Mm -hmm. can be the right fit for some people. And again, I'm talking especially about bloggers and newsletter writers, but I think a canonical example is like we have someone who's a knows a ton about grocery logistics, wants to write a grocery logistics newsletter, he's probably not going to start charging and making a lot of money from his grocery logistics newsletter. What he is going to do is that through hopefully becoming the preeminent grocery logistics newsletter, which I don't think will be that hard because it's not like there's a ton of competition, his career opportunities in the grocery logistics space in which he works are going to 10x over what he had before. And I think that kind of thing is what most people should be doing. I also think that you don't always... And this is the case with a lot of the successful newsletter authors that I know, although not all of them is, you don't necessarily have this like master plan from day one. You start writing something to explore. You might, from my angle, like personally in my newsletter, I'm trying to grow my audience just because that's what motivates me to write. If I know that at least some people are going to read what I have to say. And then you discover through experimentation what your niche is. And maybe a year in, you're like, oh, wow, I actually have built this community. I have this niche. Maybe there is an opportunity to, to charge for this. But I think any creative process has to be more exploratory. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, I generally agree with that. And the way that I would put it, the way I, I generally put it to like people in indiethinkers.org is that you probably, if you're just starting out, yeah, you're probably so far from being able to make money with your writing. But what you're really doing in the early stages is you're actually getting better at the thing that you're writing about and you're actually making progress and advances on what you actually know about the world. And that is something that is extremely valuable for anything you want to do otherwise. And also you're building a portfolio of assets that could come in handy in the future in ways you might not ever be able to predict or realize. And both of those things have genuine market value. Both of those things will genuinely, on average, increase your life outcomes over the long run. It's just very rarely is a new writer going to be specifically targeting 
a paid Substack, like in the next six months or the next 12 yeah. months, if you're start if you're starting from scratch. And I think that's like the big misnomer that a lot of people who want to get into writing have in their minds. I think that's exactly right. And I think also we, we pride ourselves on really, we want the people doing our programs to, we want to help them set realistic goals. And then we want to help them actually achieve those. And I think I've done a lot of writer's workshops and some of these writer's workshops are like, you're in this fiction workshop and you're looking around and you're like, okay, clearly like no one here is ever going to be a, you know, successful writer in the way they imagine. And there may be, I think really what they're buying in the workshop is just like the ability to believe in the dream for a couple hours a week. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I don't even think there's anything wrong with that. When you look at these little organizations that are running writers workshops, like in most cities, I do think that would pretty quickly become fairly malicious when applied to a venture scale startup. We're not, I don't want to be churning hundreds of people, thousands of people through these programs a year and not actually helping at least some of them genuinely achieve some form of success. Uh, obviously it's not going to be everyone. And I think that starts up front with helping people figure out what are actually realistic goals that they can successfully achieve. And it's not about, it's not about lowering your ambitions. It's about figuring out what's actually going to work. So the first cohort of the Writers Fellowship has only recently really gotten off the ground. And actually, as we're recording this, the, the sign up for the second fellowship is now available. So you don't have a ton of data yet on the entire process, but I'm curious, could you give us like a snapshot of what types of people enter the Writers Fellowship? And specifically, I guess I'm most curious about what portion of it is new writers, people who don't have much writing experience, but want to start getting into it in a serious way. And what percentage of the incoming people are, they have a pretty uh, consistent and established kind of writing practice of one kind or another, but they're really just trying to uh, take it to the next level or get more results out of it. Yeah. High level, we think of the fellowship as being for anyone who wants to write regularly and publicly. And that usually means for the web, just because of opportunity. I think if you had Mm -hmm. a weekly newsletter column, a newspaper column, we'd be a great fit. But who has a weekly newspaper column anymore? And I would say Mm -hmm. the type of person that's the right fit for is like the middle 80%, let's say, right? So like at the the top 10%, if you're already really successful, I'd love to have you, but you probably don't need our program. And then the Mm -hmm. bottom 10%, if you're like truly just getting started, you probably aren't far along enough to really take advantage of things. For example, I would say like the the bottom cutoff is someone, I think a great example we have is someone who works for a company where they are have to do a ton of writing internally and have for five years. So they are a pretty experienced writer from some sense, but they are brand new at thinking, okay, how do I take this skill of writing I've really built up over the years and use it to write about what I want and things I'm interested in. And then at the sort of top end, it's people who have a regular you know, newsletter or blog, and maybe they have a couple thousand subscribers already, but they're trying to figure out how do I take this to the next level? And then everything in between. Okay. Interesting. So what are some kind of plausible outcomes from this program that you as the leader of it would aim to achieve? Yeah. Yeah. So we survey people coming in and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's roughly something like 60 or 65% of people are primarily focused on growing their audience. And that includes from zero if people are just getting started. Another like 20 to 25% are focused on they really just want to establish like a regular writing cadence and and build a habit that lasts. And then maybe 10% after that, maybe 15% are focused on growing revenue. I have, that might've added up to more than hundred percent. So forgive me if those numbers are very rough, but, and so I think like real success stories are going to be someone who's seen like a really significant amount of audience growth. And that's not just, and and maybe that's not just in these eight weeks. This is a long-term community. So it's over time, even though the programming, the official programming ends after eight weeks. And that isn't just about 
there might be someone who really has already really nailed down what they're going to, what their niche is. And they are able to grow their audience just by a couple talks. They go to a couple talks about pe- from people who talk about how they've used social media or found these growth hacks, and then they really grow their audience. I don't think that's the case for most people. I think usually audience growth is going to come in large part from you, not that you had some amazing growth tactic, but that you figure out what, what stuff you're writing is resonating with your audience most. And then you double down on that. And then you see like slow and steady audience growth. Okay. I think success is going to be people... For some of the people, I say though the the canonical example of someone who just wants to establish a regular writing cadence is someone who has a very busy job, would like to be writing about some of the stuff they're thinking about in, in their job. A classic example is like an, a startup investor who knows that they'll be able to get better deals if they are public about their writing and thinking. And mm-hmm. they just have never been able to stick to a regular writing and posting schedule. And they're able to do that when they come out of the program, whether it's because they found a really great community of people here to, to give them feedback and hold them accountable, whether it's because they did some of our, we're going to have some things like something we're launching soon uh, called hardcore accountability, where people can actually stake money on whether or not their their goals. And if they don't meet their goals, we uh, take the money and we donate it to the access fund, which funds uh, scholarships for our programs. I think the, and I think the biggest example of success is like we focus I've talked a lot right now about individual success, but really we are focused first and foremost on building a community. And I think for me, one of the most important measures of success is like six months from now, a year from now, is the community, does it still have a lot of active participation from people in previous cohorts? So it's not just the current, you know, cohort who's in the middle of their eight weeks, who's really active in in the community. That's what we've seen from the On Deck Founder Fellowship. And I'm really confident it's what we're going to see from the Writer Fellowship as well. Okay, cool. Interesting. Let's maybe break down a little bit the actual content and the experience and the flow of the fellowship for the average incoming participant. My understanding is that the bulk of the content programming itself is talks given by a a bunch of different people out there who have been successful in one way or another writing in one form or another. Actually, I think I'm giving one if I recall correctly. (laughs) You are, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. So I, my understanding is that's the bulk of the quote unquote content. But then as you've been saying, a, a lot of the value proposition is stuff like community and other aspects of the experience. So maybe you could just break down for us, someone coming into this program, what types of things are they exposed to in what type of order roughly and uh, how that works? Yeah. So I would say there's four four main components to the the quote unquote content. One is the talks that you just mentioned. There's three or four of those a week. People like obviously you yourself coming in, Tyler Cowan talking about writing at Marginal Revolution, Nadia Eggball from Substack talking about how to you know build a successful newsletter on Substack, that kind of thing. These are all private off the record talks. People get really transparent. They take Q&A. And the other really cool thing we do is that we record all these talks for internal session libraries. When you are a writer in this program, a year from now, you're still going to be, you won't be able to attend the events live once your cohort has wound down, but you'll still be able to access the sort of recordings of all these talks on kind of an ongoing basis. Then we have writer's workshops, which are your fairly standard issue issue writing workshop. But I think the thing that we're able to do that's really cool is have people who are writing about similar topics in similar mediums be grouped together. We have accountability groups and surround accountability that I was talking about before. And then we have our community Slack, which is where a huge amount of, of the action takes place. And that sort of ties into the community element where a huge part of what we are doing is building a community by getting really interesting people in, but also creating the structures that allow people to engage with that community successfully. It's a lot more than just selecting the right people. For example, we have community sessions and community office hours where basically anyone in the cohort who has something they feel like they have to share with the community can uh, schedule a session or, or make themselves available for office hours. And we have a lot of systems behind the scenes to make it you know, really easy for people to, to do that. And the end result you and see that's, is like- That's having office hours with who? 
with other fellows. For example, I mean, we have, I mean, one of the things that's been amazing is it's the, it's the, we're three, basically three days into the cohort already. There's already like 15 either community sessions and, and office hours going on. A fellow who has a really big Twitter following talking about how he, how he has been able to grow his, uh, the audience for his writing by using Twitter. Some people who have experience with the traditional publishing world talking about that. People talking about their productivity hacks. And we end up getting to this point, as we've seen in the Founder Fellowship, where there might be five plus community sessions or, or office hours per day. And I think that ends up being, it's funny, we ask people when they come out of our Founder Fellowship, what the most valuable part was or what they were surprised about. And people consistently say, I was really surprised that the community was far and away the most valuable piece, even though we tell everyone upfront the community is the most valuable piece. So for people to still so, be surprised by that, it means it's even more valuable than they thought. Okay, so this is interesting. So these office hours are created by fellows and they are attended by fellows. Yeah, it sounds much. like it sounds so it sounds like this is purely autonomous, spontaneous generation from within the participants. More or less, we do some stuff. We, for example, before the fellowship kicked off, I found a couple of really promising people who I knew were interested in office hours. And I sort of lined it up such that they would be offering them on like the first day to set the tone and avoid the problem of who's going to be the first one in this Slack channel. So we we do some seeding, but more or less, yeah, it's really community driven. And that's one of the things we think about when assembling the cohorts, um, because it is a competitive program, is not just who's going to benefit from this and who's a, a good writer, but who, how can, what and how can these different people contribute to the community? Yeah, that's really interesting. How do you motivate uh, people who are paying for this program, uh, presumably on the expectation that they're going to get something out of it, as most people pay for most things for? But you're telling me that basically there's this uh, upswell of people in the program just going out of their way to uh, create these sessions where they share valuable insights and lessons and stuff like that. I think other community builders out there might be very interested in how you do that because it sounds pretty awesome. And anyone who's built a community knows that uh, this is the the critical uh, kind of inflection point where you can get members actually motivated to be producing their own valuable content for each other. But it can be quite it can be quite a hard thing to to get going. So I'm curious. It sounds really cool. But how do you get people to why exactly are people motivated to strike up these office hours and teach everything they know? Like, what is it because they're, is it because there's a large community and it's like an internal status play? Like these people, if they can make a office hours and teach something really badass, then a lot of people in the community are going to uh, admire them. And that's intrinsically rewarding or what's going on there. Yeah, I think, and I'll preface by saying, I'm just, this is just my crazy eye theorizing. I haven't surveyed people about why they do this or anything, but I think there's a few mm-hmm. main components. I think one is definitely the internal status thing, like you were saying, and we do a lot of just like shout outs and talking about people and getting the Slack to be really fun, such as I think there's that real sense of status. I think there's an element of just like it does, for most people, it does feel intrinsically good to share something that you know a lot about and have other people, I would do it for free. I do it for free. And then I also think there's an element of, especially writing, especially can be a really solitary thing. I think a lot of people really crave a community around it. I spent the, I opened this podcast by talking about how I ended up not becoming a a full-time writer because I like collaborating with other people too much. And I think you can sometimes, if you're a a early writer, you can look at, at writers and I would say, or thinkers, and I would put you in this category, Justin, who have a big social media following or bloggers who are part of this sort of community of other bloggers and they write something and then other people engage with it. And, and that's really tantalizing when you're a writer who doesn't have that. You're like, if I sure. was able to write a piece on my blog and a couple other bloggers would respond, like, wow, I'd, I'd write so much more. And I think we are hopefully providing like a, a jump start to being able to have that kind of community. And I think that's really motivating for people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned, so you mentioned workshops and you also mentioned accountability groups. I'm assuming by workshop, you mean basically people sharing their work and giving feedback to each other. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's right. And we have two two people who, who work with me, Tom White and Natalie Torin. Tom is uh, more of a blogger, like indie growth guy. And Natalie is an editor who comes a bit more from the traditional publishing world, has had pieces in and NYT Mag and stuff like that. And they work with me to, to lead these workshops. So they're facilitated. It's, it's not, that's not a fully community uh, driven thing. Okay. So that's from the top down scheduled and, and, and sent out. And then mm-hmm. you have people staffing it and holding it together. Yeah. That's for both the accountability groups and the the workshops or are the accountability groups more just like teams that are assigned to check in on each other? The accountability groups are in between. They all have a facilitator assigned to them to be checking in and monitoring things. Does that mean that facilitator is there the whole time at every single meeting? Not necessarily, but it's we want to have someone at least keeping an eye on what's going on and there to potentially make connections. If someone in my group says, I'm really struggling with, I'm having a really high churn rate for my newsletter, I don't know why. Hopefully I will know someone else either in the program or in the broader on-deck community who's gone through a similar problem who I, that I can connect them with. Okay, interesting, cool. And would you say that the people taking this program, how buckled down are they on this? Are they treating this like a full-time job or are they doing this while they are holding full-time jobs? No, definitely not. Pretty much everyone has a, a full-time job or, or is freelancing a lot or, or something like that. And and that's and I'd also add that people are in, we have people from Alaska to Australia. So basically every single time zone. And that's a big part of why we design it as this buffet style experience is you can, you can commit as much or as, as little as you want. Obviously there's a bare minimum I'd say you'd have to do to, to get value out of the program, but I think that's something really important for writing, especially is it's not something that you should, most people in this program shouldn't be giving up their full-time jobs to be writers. That's not what they want to be doing. And we want to create structures that allow them to be successful at it while also doing whatever other 8 million things they have going on in their life. Yeah, that makes sense. So I've heard from a little birdie that you have some particularly interesting takes on heuristics or practices for minimizing downside. Why don't you hit us with those? Ooh, interesting. Yeah, I definitely think... I am, I think the way I, I think people often think about the downside risk as like, they think more about, they think about the risk of what could go wrong if they make a choice, but they don't think about the sort of corresponding downside of just like sticking with what they're currently doing. You're always, you're not just like choosing one thing. You have, you can always imagine yourself in a neutral space, either making an active choice to do something else or to continue your, what you're actually doing. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that most people just really over, like I can talk about startups specifically, right? I think most people, there's this, there's this, I think people talk a lot about how oh, startups are, are such a, starting companies such a risk. People ask me like, what gave me the courage to do that? And I'll admit I do have a, a risk-taking personality. Just, you can ask my parents what I was like as a teenager. <laughs> um, oh, please don't do that. But I, I think like startups being super risky is like a huge bugaboo. I, I, if you are in a situation where you are not putting a significant amount of your own money into a startup and where you are you know, lucky or privileged enough to not have other people in your life you need to financially support, and especially if you're young. What's so risky about it? Yeah, you spend some time on something that didn't work out, flush a bunch of other people's money down the toilet, people who can afford to lose it. Um, and you end up like learning a lot and, and being better off where you started. And all you risk is really some public embarrassment. In my opinion, I, I think for most people, and certainly it was true in my experience, I can't think of something that could have benefited my career more than starting a failed startup other than if my startup had succeeded. But it certainly got me further along than uh, just sticking in, in some job would be. Yeah, I just think right. I see so many people, privileged kids with lots of options, just like doing really boring shit in their career and life because they're scared to take risk. And I just think that's really dumb. I don't know if yeah. that's a framework, but it's certainly an opinion. 
No, it's good. It's good. And I think it actually has some applications to the writing game in that one of my talking points is that I, ge- I generally find that writers or people who want to take writing more seriously, want to build a blog or build an audience writing, I find pretty consistently that they are way too worried about getting in some kind of vague trouble for what they think. I find, I, I think, I don't want to make this podcast too controversial on you or anything. Don't worry about that. But uh, like we we are in a kind of uh, somewhat confusing political time. There's obviously a lot of tension. There's a lot of conflict. And, you know, what some people call cancel culture, wherever one wants to come down on that question of what's going on with the culture wars right now. The point is, it is a fact that for at least uh, some non-trivial number of people out there, people are, they feel like they're tiptoeing on eggshells. I think I just crossed metaphors there, but uh, <laughs> that's definitely a, a fairly widespread uh, sensibility, I think, right now, because there are people who are getting in seemingly large amounts of trouble for relatively, what a lot of people would see as relatively innocuous statements or ideas or whatever. And then, of course, there are people with atrocious uh, beliefs and and statements that properly maybe perhaps get in uh, an appropriate amount of trouble. My point is not to make this like a political discussion, but th- there's something going on here. And I think it, there's some kind of chilling effect for some portion of the people uh, who want to do writing. And so I'm curious from your perspective, actually, now that we're talking about it. Oh, just to finish my point, I was just going <laughs> to say that I, I, I just like you were saying, people overestimate the risk of building a startup. I think people overestimate the risk of just saying what you freaking think, like on a blog. It's what I tell people is like, I meet with a lot of people who they have no following whatsoever and they have some like decent job that they're happy with and they don't want to lose, but they feel like if they write a blog post about some political or philosophical thing, that's totally innocuous. They're like genuinely anxious about getting in some kind of trouble because maybe it's possibly two degrees removed from something that could possibly be interpreted as provocative. So I guess my question to you is, do you encounter that so far in in the writing fellowship? Is this at all a live wire that you've had to negotiate or handle in any kind of difficult or interesting ways or no, not at all? Not yet. I think, again, it's only been a few days. so I think it could be coming. My sort of take on that is, I think it's a shame that so many people feel that anxiety that I think is typically not justified. I think in general, obviously, we could all think of the occasional example of someone who didn't have a big following and said something that maybe shouldn't have been that controversial and got misinterpreted or whatever and gotten in a lot of trouble. But those are so uncommon as compared to the percentage of people saying their opinions on the internet, which is basically everyone who has access to the internet. And I think generally speaking, most people, I think if if you're listening to this podcast and you are someone who's like really thinking about that's probably a good sign that you're not someone who's just going to like step in a ton of stupid shit because you're thinking about how your words affect other people. And I think that it's especially, I think it's especially actually speaks very well to, I think you're way less, that's way less likely to happen to you when you're writing a blog or a newsletter or something longer form, or you have more time to actually flesh out your opinions versus just like firing off a, a dumb tweet. And I also think people, something I sort of think about personally is like, You don't have to, good writing can just take someone through their thought process, right? You don't have to, you know, take a a stand or have a hot take on everything. The most recent thing I wrote about in my newsletter was about the the Coinbase post, which we probably shouldn't get into in a ton of detail, but just high level, I basically took people through my thought process in thinking about it, which is basically that I could see the issue from a couple different angles. And here's how I thought about all those out. I think sometimes people feel pressure to, they always need to be saying, having a really definitive opinion on, on everything, which... If you have those, great, but I don't think that's always the case. I think that's fair and judicious. So not to change gears too abruptly, but I would love to learn from you why 
JFK was actually a bad president. <laughs> Speaking of hot takes, yeah, so I love American history. This is one of my my bugaboos. I've now used that word twice on this podcast, and it's really not a normal part of my vocabulary. Yeah, it's funny. I, I originally started thinking about this because I'm sure you've heard this Peter Thiel question. That's what's something that you believe that everyone everyone else doesn't believe is true, and it's become such yeah, I a find like, it, I find that so insufferable. Not the question yes. itself, but how how pervasive it is. It's like whenever I talk with people from the Bay Area, it's every fucking person has some... T- totally canned answer to that question. Right, and right. It's, I, I think I've called it before. I've called it, it's like a kind of homogenous originality. It's like really cool if everyone's super original, but when everyone is trying to be original around the same axis, it, it, it defeats the point in a, in a way that I find quite creepy and insufferable. A hundred percent. I totally agree. And so I was thinking a while back about what are answers to that question I could have that are like, Things I actually do believe, but also funny because they're not like this isn't some big societal, you know, statement. It's just like my take on American history. But yeah, basically, JFK, he uh, accomplished almost nothing in his time in office. Most of his big quote unquote accomplishments in foreign policy are just like fixing his previous screw ups. He did do a great job in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but like he got himself into that situation. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He spends the vast majority of his time in office taking drugs, which admittedly were prescribed by a doctor, but it was Dr. Feel, literal, the, the literal original Dr. Feelgood, who was later got his <laughs> license tripped and who was like giving drugs to the Beatles at the same time and fucking, including like tons of underage women and in a lot of sketchy situations and way beyond. And if you like read about it more, his drug taking and fucking like actually did affect his performance on the job. Like he would be unreachable at critical times because he was having sex with some intern in the pool. We're all worried about Trump on these steroids. He was getting getting like amphetamine shots every day. Mm. And if he hadn't been assassinated and then been subject to the most aggressive media myth-making campaign of like anyone we've ever seen, he would not be super well-regarded. And on top of all that, he fucking got us into Vietnam. Admittedly, uh, LBJ escalated it a great deal, but it was Kennedy who like originally got us in there. So yeah, I got to say from everything I've read about the guy, he seems super charming and fun. I'd love to have dinner with him. And I don't think he was in our, you know, bottom... 10 presidents of all time, but his status is wildly above his actual accomplishments. And I was very happy to see the recent in my home state of Massachusetts to see uh, Senator Ed Markey defeat the other, I forget which Kennedy it was, some younger Kennedy nephew in the senatorial primary, hopefully the last gasp of the Kennedy mystique, which America should definitely be moving beyond. There's my hot take for you on this podcast. I think that's a fair point and, and well argued. Is there on the internet like a super long Max Nussenbaum hit piece on JFK? There isn't. I feel like there, there should be. There is not yet. It's something I have been thinking about writing. The problem is I this piece would require me to revisit some of my actual, the many like actual books I've read about Kennedy to make sure I'm getting all my facts. And with the amount of time I'm spending on the writer fellowship, I've just been turning to writing things that wouldn't require quite as much like rereading of 600 page books, but it's coming eventually. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Yeah. The Kennedy family, the whole family's pretty crazy. It's pretty sketchy, that family. A lot of people don't know about the Chappaquiddick incident. Do you know this story? Oh, yeah. Of course. Of that course. story. Yeah. I, I won't like rehearse the whole thing in part because I don't remember all the details, but people should look into it. It's pretty sketchy. Like basically, yeah. uh, I'm going to totally butcher this. I'm probably going to get sued by the Kennedy family or something <laughs> for totally slandering them or something, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But basically it was somewhere in uh, New England, where the Kennedys are associated with, they were partying or whatever as a family. And basically, it was this really weird, sketchy story where I think it was Teddy Kennedy, right? Yeah, who, it was. Uh, who is the way it looks, the way a lot of people interpret it, although it's shrouded in mystery because they're a powerful family and who knows what kind of strings were pulled. But basically, it looks like uh, Teddy Kennedy, if I recall correctly, was yeah. uh, dry, was driving drunk and 
killed someone and then that there was a cover-up that's the kind he, of allegation he, he had a passenger in the car a woman who he was probably trying to sleep with drunk drove off a bridge and basically uh fell into a, a lake or river or something and he swam out and made it to shore but basically left her to drown or couldn't save her and tried to cover it up while he was a sitting senator by the way yeah this i think i don't know if you watch succession but i think this was pretty clearly the inspiration for uh, a plot line in uh, season one of succession that i won't say anything more about it to, to not spoil it too much um Okay. Yeah, every Kennedy is just the ultimate example of rich, attractive, charismatic men getting away with like horrible bullshit. But somehow, you know, we haven't yet reassessed uh, their uh, standing as much as I think we we should in like the current cultural moment. Yeah, it's like people talk about a Kennedy curse, but actually, maybe the Kennedys are just like genetically crazy fucking people who are like, <laughs> and I say this as an Irish Catholic myself, so it's not no prejudice here. But yeah, I think a cur- in a way, like the idea of a Kennedy curse is itself just more uh, testimony to what you're saying about a kind of uh, undue elevated status that is way beyond proportion. So it's like the family's given all this slack as if there's some kind of curse. But in fact, maybe they all what they all really have in common is some genes that are <laughs> lead them yeah. to uh, crazy, I mean, I crazy do want to say while we're just on the subject of the whole Kennedy family, I do want to say Bobby Kennedy wasn't that bad. He was involved in some sketchy shit covering stuff up for JFK. He wasn't perfect, but I think it was normal level politician stuff and nothing like super sketchy. So just want to give a shout out to, to Bobby Kennedy, the best of the Kennedy brothers while we're, while I'm shitting on the, the rest of their legacy. Fair enough. I appreciate your balance there. I think <laughs> the reason why the Kennedys have uh, a status that is uh, inflated way beyond proportion to their actual reality is precisely because of the assassinations. It gives them a kind of halo effect. Yeah, I do think it's true. Although they, he had it, they had it even before to some degree, really kicking the gear after the assassination. And I do think you read these stories about a JFK, especially when I read a whole book about him, just his youth. And like, he had that halo around him. Obviously, he didn't have a national reputation yet. But like, some people just are so charming and charismatic that they have that uh, reputation around them, that halo around them from early on. And he was genuinely brilliant. So probably could have been a successful cult leader if he hadn't been president. <laughs> yeah, he was like the cult leader in chief of America. <laughs> in a way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I don't want to keep you too long. We have been talking for some time. I guess maybe I just have maybe two more questions, really. The one is, I'm curious just about the technology stack behind the Writers Fellowship. So you were thrown into the mix and just told to build a fellowship as ha- often happens in fast growing early stage startups. But I'm curious, like, how does it work under the hood? Uh, what kind of tools are you using? And how do these things play together, both from for the perspective of someone who might be a community builder themselves, but also it would give a little bit of data for people thinking about the program? Totally. Yeah, it's really cool. Because on deck, we do have an engineering team internally, we are building a lot of our own products. And I think it's going to be a much bigger part of our strategy going forward. But really, right now, the only thing that's running on custom software we built is our internal sort of fellow directory, which is valuable, but pretty basic right now. It's not anything super complicated. We are, we're huge uh, proponents of the no code approach. And in fact, I I don't know if this is public yet, but we are planning on launching a a no code fellowship uh, at some point for people who want to basically learn how to be builders without becoming developers. And so Mm -hmm. it's super, we have this tech stack of Slack, Zoom, Typeform, Google Calendar, Google Forms, uh, Sheets that's sort of all linked up together with uh, Zapier, which is a a great tool for those who who don't know about it that lets you just link together uh, all these different web products. And I think what's really great about that is that it allows us to be really experimental and for people on our team to create new tools and functionality for these fellowships without everything having to go through the development pipeline. And then obviously when things really work, we eventually transition from a sort of jury rig no-code solution into a into actually getting them built out as products. But 
we this community and this program would not work the way it does if we were just like building a lot of tools top down and telling the people in the program use this, right? A lot of the stuff we've done is we've observed bottom up behavior that's come from the community. And then we build some sort of half, uh, half jury rig together tools to make it easier. And then we quickly are able to iterate based on how that's working. And then eventually we, we turn it into a product. Um, and that's something I think is it's an approach that I, I would recommend to, to anyone, but it's certainly really effective for the kind of thing we do. Yeah, totally agree. That's exactly how I built Indie Thinkers. And it's yeah. awesome. Uh, people still don't understand the magic of no code. I think it's a total game changer. And uh, especially interesting to writers also, because what it really means is that you can have an expertise and a main kind of personal brand where you build your audience uh, completely on your intellectual powers and what you're able to write. And then you can also start building things really quickly and easily without knowing any code. And you can leverage your kind of intellectual prowess and your intellectual credibility into any number of different alternative plays, whether it be different types of tools or apps or communities that you would be amazed what you can build nowadays with no code. And it's all pretty easy to learn. It's all very well documented. There's a lot of people doing it now. But yeah, that's how Indie Thinkers was built also. And we have people in there doing the same. So I'm with you on that. I'm, I think it's awesome. And I'm super bullish on that. Definitely. And I would say for anyone in the audience interested in this, uh, stay tuned for the announcement of our No Code Fellowship, which is coming early next year. And I think it's going to be a really awesome opportunity for people to learn that kind of stuff. Heck yeah. Awesome. I have only one more question for you, Max. All right. The question is, what was the mistake that you made on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? <laughs> I should have known this was coming. So uh, I I chose to walk. I didn't make a mistake. Um, classic. I know I said I had a risk-taking personality earlier, but at, at 19, oh, I made it. I walked. Yeah, I made it. I made it halfway up the stack, which is the fifteen thousand dollar question. And the question was, it was which company has been in the Dow Jones Industrial Average for the longest? Which is funny because now that I've like worked in tech and business for a decade, I would know the answer to this question off the top of my head. But at nineteen, I had no, I hadn't even begun my transition from the arts world to the like business world. I had no idea. The correct answer was GE. I I forget what some of the other options were, but yeah, I, I ended up choosing to walk which I think was the right call. At the time, if I'd gotten it wrong, I would have fallen down to $5,000. And the extra 10 grand is still a lot of money now, but especially at 19, when I was like, this is more money than I've ever seen in my entire life. I, I, I decided to take the easy way out. Do you have a model of the game theoretic optimal strategy for who wants to be a millionaire? Did you go into it or did you leave it with heuristics about what, when, and what, which of the uh, tools you can use at which junctures? How did you think about that going so, in and going out? It's funny. I'll say first off, this is all in retrospect. Going in, I did not think about that at all. I was honestly way more excited about the chance to be on TV than I was at the chance to win any money. Uh, and I will say as a game show fan, who wants to be a millionaire is probably the least amenable to any type of like mathematical or even just mental model because and part of what made it so successful is that it's designed to be like pretty easy. In fact, I later found out once I was on it, I found out to, to get on one of the screenings was I had to take an online trivia test. They actually want you to only do pretty well. They don't let you on if you're amazing because what <laughs> makes the drama is people like being unsure and thinking really dramatically and using their lifelines. So they actually want you to only be like, okay. Um, or yeah, yeah also if pretty good, but. If everyone was awesome, they'd be bankrupt in no time. <laughs> <laughs> also true. And there are good, you, there's good heuristics for like the first five questions where you can pretty, you can, they're like at easy SAT questions where you can probably figure them out based on process of elimination, even if you don't know anything. One is probably going to be funny. There's one that maybe like seems reasonable, but if you think about it for a second, it really doesn't make sense. But beyond that, 
The only really tough one and the thing I probably would have done differently if I had to do it again is I is deciding when to use your lifelines. And I think it's right. tempting. And I did this at one point to use a lifeline on something where you have a pretty confident guess, but you want to just be sure. And I would say that's probably a waste of a lifeline. I would have saved my lifeline for one where I, where I really needed it. Because the GE in, question- in other words, you're saying people are too uh, risk averse. They're too, they lack uh, the risk tolerance to correct, to guess what they are pretty sure is correct. So they waste yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, or at least I was. I don't know if most people are. I also think it's very different position when I went on that show at 19. So there were some questions that like 100% would have been easy for the audience or my phone a friend. But I just didn't know because I was as a child, basically. So I didn't have that much lived experience. So I think it's very different from if you're 40 and you're stumped on a question, the audience probably won't know because they're probably not any smarter than you. But if you're 19, they they might. So I I do think the strategies are a little different if you are very young on that show, which is obviously not very common. But I suspect also the major cognitive problem with playing who wants to be a millionaire optimally is I suspect that being on TV really amplifies the loss aversion bias. Yes. Where, yeah, because no one wants to be a loser. Like, yes, you don't, you're ni- you're 19 years old. You don't want to start your public life with losing a, a show that probably like less impressive people have done better on. So, and, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, so I was just going to say, so you probably the average player is not making the optimal strategy with the highest expected value but you're really just trying to make sure you don't lose in a stupid way. That's 100% right. My biggest fear was being one of those people who loses in the first couple questions and doesn't get any money. And they're all so easy. But these videos of this guy, I remember vividly a guy who first question, what color is Big Bird? And he goes, green, final answer. And then immediately you can see it in his eyes that he was like, no, I said the wrong one. And just people get caught up in the... I don't know. You just, you're on TV. It's stressful. There's hot lights and you just say something stupid and wrong, which uh, is something I've done many times, not on TV, but just in my personal life. So I was, you always know that's a possibility. Totally. Uh, Max, this was awesome. Super fun. Interesting stuff uh, all throughout this. Was there anything you wanted to let my audience know other than the fact that the sign up opportunity for the second cohort of your writer's fellowship is now available at the time that they'll be listening to this? Anything yeah. else we didn't cover that is really important to share or that you uh, just really wanted to get out into the world? No, just wanted to emphasize that. It's at beyonddeck.com slash writers. I'm, I'm sure you have like notes or something where you're, we'll throw the URL yep, in. It'll but, be in the uh, show notes. Uh, anyone who's who thinks this at all sounded appealing or who just wants to have more opportunities to listen to me say crazy stuff, uh, the Writer Fellowship is for you. So I encourage you to check it out. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there. So check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. See you here next time.